Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. In relationship, so often we have assumptions and we hope and we maybe don't have clear communication or agreements. Like I've, there had, there's been so many times I've had couples in my office or in my, my space therapeutically. And I'm like, have you talked about this? Or, and it's like, they never talked about what, what something meant to them. What does it mean? Cause you could have somebody that's really extroverted, really affectionate. I've even had cultural influences here where one is like, it's totally great to like put your arm around someone or, you know, there's just things that are don't even think twice about where someone maybe that came up in a little bit more reserved or conservative would be like, I would never touch someone I just met, like, and don't know of the opposite sex. And, you know, so I, I know I'm getting into the weeds a little bit here, but I do think when we can have clear agreements around how we care for the bond and the health, it's not control. It's being able to say, here's what I'm wanting. And a, a really good boundary is saying, here are my limits. Here's my preferences. Here's my needs. It's not, I need you to do X, Y, and Z to help me feel better. So it's being able to engage in a dialogue where this is where I am. And then where are you? And then perhaps we can come to a win-win that feels good for both of us. And sometimes that's not super apparent. It takes a process, but this is part of what we're talking about is mutual relating in a way that we can be there for one another, support each other, care for each other, show up for each other in a way that's authentic. And we're also being cared for, right? It's not, oh, I self-sacrifice. You know, it's almost this idea of covert contracts that, oh, I'm the nice, pleasing partner. And then my hope is that you're going to give me all the rewards, but we don't talk about it and there's no clear agreements around it. And I don't even, I'm not even in touch with my needs to advocate. I'm just hoping you'll know what it is and give it to me. You know, we talk about this and I'm listening to you and I understand the sense of what you're saying. And I'm thinking about, and this came up for me in some of my writing is that for some reason, we as therapists expect a spouse to know how to do the right thing when someone else is alcoholic or why are they enabling? Why are they enmeshing? Why are they? Well, mm -hmm. it's not that they're so you know terrible. It's that this is the best they can do. They didn't go to college to learn how to repair addiction. Mm -hmm. So in many ways, I think what you're talking about is not innate. You know, mm -hmm. I didn't necessarily learn how to be close. I didn't necessarily learn how to open up. I didn't. And so sometimes I think what you're talking about are completely foreign concepts 
to a couple or to the person in the room. Totally. And I, I say that because a lot of folks, and this is always really important to me, so many of the people who are listening will never make therapy. They don't have the resources, they don't have the time, they don't have the insurance, they can't read the book, they're kid, they have five kids, or they won't go to 12-step programs or support groups because they're embarrassed or humiliated or they don't have time, whatever. How can we guide people who don't necessarily have all those resources, who mm-hmm. can't see us for a year? You know, What are some three or four things you could say, here's how you could begin to come to to a grounding. Here's where you can begin to let go of a little bit of that pushing apart and moving together. Is there anything you could say to people who won't be able to see us? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, I want to say, you know, I didn't have the most fortunate circumstances growing up. I'm just wanting to normalize that I grew up with some level of trauma for sure. I had some significant traumas, but I did have a parent that was helping me understand the value of I statements and exposing me to communication. And I had an undergrad in psych and I had, I think I was in a master's program at that point. And I still was completely at a loss of these principles. For in your own life. In my own life. And I felt really well equipped if I looked at the average person. And I still felt completely at a loss around how to negotiate this. And so I do think things are changing in the sense that there's the information age. I think podcasts like this, there's self-help books, people can get a library card and access support groups online. There's Mm -hmm. YouTube, there's a ton of different ways in which people can start to self-teach. And I think in the way, if I can just distill some of what we're talking about here today, I mean, one of the big overarching things that's echoing in my mind is the attempt to to control while the impulse is really understandable to feel that protection, to really somehow help your partner show up for you, that it's counterintuitive, that it's actually going to create more distance. It's going to create a false sense of trust. It's not going to really help foster that deep level of intimacy. So part of what we're talking about is However, we can access our deeper vulnerability through journaling, through these self-help, you know, online groups, different ways, maybe a trusted friend or just Thanos, just sitting down and making time and saying, yes. you're going to talk for 20 minutes and I'm going to talk for 20 minutes. The kids are in bed. I'm going to listen to you. I mean, just the most basic ways that I'm beginning to listen to you, which is, you know, I don't, people are often talking over each other. I think part of what we're also saying too here is that before we even enter into dialogue with another, I'll even say, I've been doing this work for so, so long. And when I'm dysregulated, when I'm reacting, if I start to talk to my husband and try to communicate likely, I'm not going to be in touch with the deepest thing in me. And so there's some preparation that I want to do to set that dialogue up for more success. And that is to get clear whether or not I put pen to paper and I just try to journal or I sit in nature and just try to reflect, what does this mean to me? Because usually the impulse is like want to talk about the other, to point to the other and describe what they did to me or, well, she's just this or whatever that is. Mm -hmm. Yes. So if my partner would do the thing that I'm wanting them to do, what would that allow me to feel? So I think if if we're speaking about getting access to these deeper layers, whether or not it's through the help of a book that's got questions in it or journaling, and then once we can have some sense, because I will say personally, if there's a situation, again, that I am triggered by or have issue with, 
my first description is all the things my husband did that I deem incorrect or an injustice, or I felt insulted by. You made me yes. miserable. Yes. yes. And I have all the validation. <laughs> There's a place that I do think that we want to share a story and feel validated in that, but likely my husband's not going to really turn towards that. So if I go pen to paper and I kind of just journal, nothing I'm going to keep, I viably might shred it or something, but I'll get to this place. If I unpack it enough into the deeper layers, I'll get to a place of like, oh, I felt scared or, oh, I felt humiliated or, oh, and it's like this deeper sense in me that's like, okay, like this is the juice of like what's fueling all the other layers above it and and the behavior and the protection strategies. So once I get that, like, oh, okay, I'm scared or I feel hurt or, um, Mm. I feel humiliated or I don't know how to trust. It's super scary. Then I'm in a much better position to reveal. And again, I say reveal intentionally that when we turn to our partner and we want to seek some level of understanding and empathy from our partner, they're likely going to give it if we show them through some vulnerability and expression, they're they're more likely to turn towards that than if we describe all the evidence a wide build a case right? yes. building a case we're all very good lawyers at saying how how terrible our clients our client our clients our partners are and uh, how we can prove that to everybody I, I do want to say a couple of things I have one more question number one I want you all to really know we are not here blaming the victim we are not here saying we are not saying when do you get over it you're you're angry for too long you know what we're saying is what we're talking about is how do people find peace with each other and you may not be ready to be vulnerable, whatever that means to you, but you might take a little teeny piece. You know, I just think vulnerable is about testing. It's like, I open up a little bit. How does that go? I open up a little bit. Because some of you are hearing, you know, you may be thinking it's a big gesture and it's really not. It's saying, you know, that kind of hurt my feelings and this would be a more helpful way to help me feel better. Just that. And then you sit back and see, do they hear it? Do they not? And you test back and forth in little ways. But I have to ask you a couple of big questions, and I know I'm taking up a lot of your time, but this is really mm-hmm. helpful. There's two. I often hear from spouses, okay, you stopped the affairs, you stopped the compulsive sex, you stopped, you know, whatever it is, the drinking, whatever it is, but you're still a jerk. In other words, and I hear this, you know, he's doing often, you know, he's doing this, and I say, and I really believe the behavior is stopped, and I really believe that he's working hard, but he's still a doesn't treat me well. He's still not nice to me. He still doesn't listen to me. And I guess I want to say the other part to you, Jessica, is this really always intrigues me that I work with hundreds of couples and a betrayed or violated partner will often write. And I ask them to write, what has been your experience in your partnership and what is the most hurtful thing? And I treat people who sexually act out and cheat. So I always figure that what that partner is going to write is a whole letter about how I've been cheated on and how could you do this to me? And I knew this person, whatever it is. And almost almost every time what partners write about is, I felt you were unavailable. I never felt like you responded to me. I didn't think you really understood how much I needed you. You didn't open up to me and I felt alone. You walked away from my emotional life. And it's interesting to me because that you would think I mean, the sex and the cheating is is really like the trigger for what I see to, for all of this other stuff that comes pouring out that has nothing to do with sex. And so I guess the, the basic question is, how do I, it does take time for someone to become a better person. They may stop what they were doing that was the most egregious piece, 
But being more empathic, being kinder, being less self-focused, being less narcissistic, we both know that can take longer. And so how do I say to a spouse, well, she loves you and she stopped her behavior, but she doesn't know how to be a nice person yet. And how do you help a couple understand that the person they want that other person to be could be a long road for them? And it's not just going to happen because a bad thing happened and now they're going to jump in and be a better person right away. You have to learn how to be a better person. How do I, what do I say to those spouses who say, you know, we've been through all this and now they're doing all this, but they're still a jerk. What, what, I truly mean this. What do I say to them? Hmm. Well, I think there's a lot of things uh, that we could potentially talk about that might be variables in this. One thing I really want to underscore that you're saying is helping people learn how to find each other is so much of what we're really What does that mean, find each other? So in these places of distance, in these places of disconnect, and even my husband and I, like if I'm looking, if I'm on my computer or if I see he's doing something, we're through neuroception. This is basically where we're observing the other, we're feeling them, we're reading their nonverbals, their facial expressions, their tone of voice. And if we assess that they've got something going on or they're not available, then we're not feeling welcomed to engage and connect. So when I say find each other, Mm. we're going to get off track always. It's just how do we get back on track? How do we find each other? How do we find this connection? So when I say find each other, it's through all the stuff that feels scary, that feels distracting, that feels traumatizing. How do we reach to each other? How do we find connection? How do we find each other? Like That's so key. Do you want to respond to that before I am? Well, I was just thinking it has to be very basic, Mm -hmm. you know, because what I can learn is, and I, I, I'm guilty of this is my, my husband likes to cook. And so he'll say, you know, dinner's ready, been working on it. And my response is, no, don't you understand? I have this paragraph to finish and then I've got to talk to someone else. And don't you understand how important it is what I'm doing? Because I want to convince you that if, if you understood how this important this was, you wouldn't, you wouldn't ask me to ever leave it. And to me, that's a perfect example of you're not listening. Mm -hmm. This person is inviting you in to move toward them. And when you don't, they think you're a jerk. It's so simple to just show up, even in little ways that begin Mm -hmm. to show, I value you. I listen to you. I'm paying attention. And I think that's what you're talking about is it's again, it's not a big sweeping thing. It's little pieces. Yes. And I think the Gottman Institute has done a lot to really help us understand how critical it is to respond to, as they would call a person's bid. So it's almost this metaphor of someone's reaching their hand out and you're grabbing their hand. And it's through all like in a crowd and all the different things happening. Like we know how to find each other, like that kind of idea. So it can be as simple as dinner's ready. Like I just made you this beautiful meal. Come join me. And yes, if one is really into their work and it feels really important to get this email out, I do think a response, it's still responding. It's still turning towards, it's maybe not super positive, but can you give me two minutes? I just want to finish this email I will be right there. That's a response. It's not now my like, husband knows that two minutes is going to be five and five minutes is going to be well, that's 10. The thing is following through <laughs> prioritizing that the health of that response. If we look at the accumulation of that, that is where we have trust. That's where we get to feel prioritized. That's what you're speaking about in these ways that 
we don't feel our partners available. They're not caring. They're not prioritizing us. And this is what usually matters most. I remember I was on a podcast. I was being interviewed and this woman is beautiful. Like she would make her, her partner, these beautiful meals. And then they would go like they would go to waste. They would start getting moldy in the fridge and she would just be beside herself. And, and it felt as though he didn't care about her, but I was like, well, so we talked about it and it was just so eye opening for her to recognize that she couldn't understand why she was up in arms about these meals and that were going to waste in the fridge. And she was like, oh, this is so symbolic of how I feel. Like I'm worried he's not caring for me or receiving my love. And so being able to make that conscious and you get to have a much more explicit conversation. Cause I'm like, well, maybe he doesn't really want to eat during the day. Like, you know, and maybe there's other ways. Right. Maybe to it's care. not about you at all, but nonetheless, it meets a need that you want the attention, the validation. And then if you're not meeting this very sick need, then there must be something wrong with me or you that you're not understanding what I need. And it may be just, I don't get that, that it's not just dinner. I get mm-hmm. that what you need is to feel like I'm listening, to feel like I'm showing up, to feel like I understand what you need. And it isn't about the food, right? It's about how do I leave you feeling like what matters to you matters. So I know I go on and on, but this is going to be my very last. It's a comment, actually. Mm-hmm. I believe, and I, I believe you do too, that the harm that people cause each other, the pain, the disappointment, that that's not the important part of the whole picture. As And I'm going to explain myself. As therapists, I make mistakes. I say the wrong thing. I upset someone. You know, we're not gods. We're human beings and we're trained, but we're not perfect. Mm-hmm. And so we let our clients down. We disappoint them. We we don't show up in ways like a partner that they might need us to. One of the things they teach us is it's all in the repair. You know, that's it's not that I make a mistake as your therapist. It's that can I go back and say, wow, I didn't do that right. And, you know, how can we move beyond? And that is the more important part than the pain of what happened is how do we move toward healing? And would you say that's true in relationships where the most important part on some level is the repair? Absolutely. And being able to engage and reconnect and find, get back on track is so critical. And I do want to, I'm reminded that I wanted to say one thing, if I can go back that I believe is related, that one of the things that's also a classic disconnect cycle is when one person's being critical or is being hard on the other one. So when you talk about they're not being nice to me and maybe there's some complaint on the person that's feeling unhappy, right? That their partner's not being nice. So a classic uh, cycle is this criticism and the defensiveness or even this sense of complaint. The partner's not finding a lot of pleasure in that. They're not really feeling like they want to engage. It's not joyful. It's not warm. It's not inviting. So I'm just moving towards you so you won't be angry at me. Right. Or I'm avoiding what seems like going to, I'm like avoiding complaint. I'm avoiding criticism. And so they tend to kind of turn away or kind of be more self-contained and not really reaching because they're trying to mitigate that, what feels like a complaint or a criticism. So if you're asking me, what can someone do to support more of this pleasurable, harmonious interaction? I think being able to really make some of the complaint and turn it into a request 
So a moment ago, I was saying, oh, if we can turn it into a reveal that can cultivate more of that understanding and that empathy. The other thing we can do is instead of complaining and criticizing, we can say, here's what I would love, or here's what would make a big difference. And here's why. So we're inviting the thing that we would love. And that is a more positive Mm -hmm. setup because Again, we know this with parenting either, even, or we know this with parenting also, which is we can say, don't do this, don't do that, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. Like, and there's a lot of don't messaging, mm-hmm. but if we're like, you know, if someone has a tendency to be a little like, well, let's just use a classic bully, right? We can affirm, I love that you know what you want, or I love that you're able to assert yourself. And can you practice humility or can you practice more kindness? Right. So it gives them a sense of like their fieriness or their ambition is, is healthy. And how do we call into more of this kindness or this humility? So I know that's a parent child dynamic. We're not talking about that. But but it's still, it's, it's, you're talking about being invitational. And, you know, a parent, a good parent may say, may not say you never come to dinner on time to your kid or your adult uh, partner, but you can say, you know, it would mean a lot to me if you came to dinner on time because it would make me feel rewarded like my efforts are, are being acknowledged. Yeah. And, and that to me is I could hear that. In fact, I could even feel bad about that in a good way, a little bit guilty. And that's much more than I've got to do what you say. And if I don't, you're going to be upset with me, which I don't necessarily want to move toward. So I I love that you said that. And I'm never going to stop peppering you with questions. You can tell me when to stop. But I promise this is my last one. I promise, (laughs) promise, promise. Because it is the last one. How do I know when it's time to leave or stay? Hmm. That's a real difficult one to give any prescription around. I will say in general, I think when one is feeling really aligned with some of the things that we're talking about around getting clear around what are the deeper needs, the deeper longings and understanding what we're wanting to cultivate, what we're wanting to participate in and happiness, 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 right. Yeah. And we're setting our own limits, not to control our partner, but to say, here's what I'm available for. Here's what I'm not willing to participate in. And we're being consistent about that. And we're, we're giving invitation, as you mentioned, and we're communicating with our significant other around how, like what we're, what feels like our vision and what we're wanting to create. And if we're continually And I, again, I rarely see that it's all or nothing, but if we're continually getting the consistent message that our partner or the partner is not interested, not willing, isn't indifferent, and with all the different, maybe even getting support or really feeling like one's done, like I've really stayed in my lane. I've really stayed on my side of the street. I've really done my work to, and I feel like I'm given this enough time, I think sometimes when we change, our partner still sees us in the old way and the old cycle. So giving it a little bit of space, but at some point when we really recognize the health of the relationship is detrimental and it feels as though they're unwilling. I do think at some point we got to recognize, okay, life is valuable and my time is valuable and I'm responsible and have to make some choices about what I'm creating. And I've done everything I can do. Mm-hmm. I think at that point, it's probably time to call it. I mean, again, I can't say for anyone, but those those are pretty good indicators that it's not getting a lot of traction. And to speak to that, I just want to say that 
as much as I want to move toward happiness and understand that my needs aren't being met and this isn't happy for me, sometimes it's so important for me to avoid grief and to avoid loss that I'm willing to put up with my unhappiness or tolerate it because we've put so much into this or because I've had so many losses already or uh, you don't give me everything I want, but at least I've got- Right, I won't find someone else. Well, there's certainly that. Well, I sorry I interrupted you. I think you were just saying that there can be the risk that one is tolerating so much because they've already invested so much that they're- They don't want to deal with the loss. I mean, the loss, the fear of the loss is greater than the pain that I'm in, basically. And that's the classic, what's known might be more comfortable and the unknown might be more terrifying, even if it's giving more opportunity for health and develop like growth, but we might choose what's familiar, even if it feels awful. And I have to say, just to stop that, I certainly have had a few friends say, and maybe I have said this a few times myself, I don't think my parents stayed together for the right reasons. You know, I ultimately think they and we would have been happier had they not held on to this for 50 years, you know, and we've said that. I've also heard couples say, we've been together for 40 years, you know, and it's kind of like a look at how well we're doing based on that amount of time versus on the quality of the relationship. Anyway, Dr. Higgins, I want to have relationship problems. So just so we can come see you. But I know there are so many people you have, you have writings, you have information, you have a podcast, you have a website. How can people best gain more information from you? And if they want to see you or work with you or do some kind of intensive or something, how can they find you and, and seek you out and your work? Hmm, thank you. The best way to get in touch is the website, which is drjessicahiggins.com. And that's doctor with a DR and they're is uh, a link for the podcast. There's a link for courses and getting coaching and articles mm. and all those things. So it's it's the hub of it all. And I have this feeling you really love what you do. I just think there's something for you about bringing people together and helping them find peace that brings you joy. Mm. And um, you know, I'm so glad you're in my life. So thank you, and thank you everybody for being here. I don't know, but I bet the next podcast is also going to be amazing because. Why wouldn't it be? Thanks mm. for your time. Let us know if you need anything at seekingintegrity.com. And this is Dr. Weiss saying, be at peace and find each other's hearts. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our treatment center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term, effective, intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.